I hope that it's your prayer this morning as it is mine, that all glory would be to Christ for any credit that's received from the history of Community Baptist Church. If you're uh, three years old, all the way through the third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church time. So our kids head to a lesson that's prepared. If you're a guest with us this morning and your child would like to go to children's church, they can slip right to the back as long as you promise to pick them up when you're done. That's the deal that we have with our members. And so uh, right after the service on the way to lunch, you can pick them up just down that hallway on the left for their, from their children's church service. In our Sunday morning services, we've been going through the book of Titus as we look at characteristics of a healthy church according to God's standards. And for this morning, I'd like to deviate from that series in the book of Titus in order to bring you a message that's been on my heart. A message found from the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. It was read for us this morning from Pastor Stedman. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there, Hebrews chapter 10 message that I've entitled, A Footpath to Faithfulness. A Footpath to Faithfulness. God has given Community Baptist Church an incredible history of 75 years of faithfulness to the Lord, faithfulness to Scripture, of 75 years of faithfulness in serving. And with God's grace, we're planning for another 175 more years of faithfulness. I grew up, and my dad was a pastor, And he would often tell us, don't forget, every pastor is an interim pastor. Because as God's church moves forward and God gives men of God to shepherd the flock, as God has given us an incredible team of pastors here at Community Baptist Church, we pray that God's church would march forward. We know that it will until he returns. And we pray that it will right here at Community. That as we're faithful to the word, as we are faithful in service, as we are faithful in prayer, as we align our hearts and our lives to the word of God, we can pray that we will see his church built right here in South Bend. And so today we look back on an incredible history of 75 years here at Community. Many of you have been here for a large portion of that, and we look forward to many more years of faithfulness that thankfully does not hinge on any one of us, nor did the history of community hinge on any one person other than Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, our text begins in verse 19. I'd like for you to look down at your text as I read it for you. We'll pray and we'll ask God's blessing on the reading of the word. The author of Hebrews records through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit divine truth for us when he writes... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more that you see the day drawing near. 
Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would enlighten the eyes of your children, illuminate us to see your truth and apply it to our lives. That if there's one joining us today and in a crowd of this size, no doubt there may be many who have not turned from their sin and placed their faith and trust in you alone for salvation, that you would turn their heart of flesh into a heart of stone, that you would breathe light and life into their dead soul, that they would place their faith and trust in you alone for their forgiveness of sins and their eternal destination with you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning in my message, I'd like to show you two foundational truths that act as a bedrock for us here at Community and as a bedrock for all of those who will be faithful. And then I'd like to show you three Christ-centered pursuits that have been the center of our ministry here at Community Baptist Church and will be the center as we continue as a faithful ministry. First of all, two foundational truths found in verses 19 through 21, the first of which is this, Jesus alone is our access to God. Jesus alone is our access to God. Look with me down at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. For those of us that were not raised in a Jewish background, as I assume almost none of us were, it helps us understand this passage in its context by recognizing that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. Thus, its title, To the Hebrews, to those who were raised in the Jewish faith, who understood the Jewish customs, And then had turned and recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. The ones who the Old Testament saints look towards as their Messiah, as their promised anointed one, as their future king coming. And thus those New Testament Christians can look back to. And so the author refers to them as brothers, recognizing that they're not only a part of the family of the Israelites, but they're also a part of the family of God as those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, recognizing that all those who come to faith in Christ find a Father in heaven rather than a judge. This morning, God's view towards you is one of two things. Either you are His child wrapped in the white robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, or you are His enemy still in your sin. And all those who come to Christ to find forgiveness find a Father in heaven rather than a judge. And these verses remind us that, number one, we have confidence. Jesus is our access to God, therefore we can have confidence. Notice this passage doesn't say we might have confidence, like maybe some Christians have confidence and others don't. Nor does it say that one day we will have confidence to enter into the presence of God. But it gives us this truth as a present reality, as an active reality for us. This active reality that every child of God can have confidence. It's this confidence in the midst of intimidating circumstances is kind of the the inference here. This word is often used in reference to openness or liberty or a specific freedom in regards to a government or state. It's as though you you were traveling abroad and you ran into some trouble. And in order to find safety, you had to run to the American embassy in that country. 
But you can walk into those doors with confidence because you hold in your hand, hopefully one that's not expired, right? An American passport. And you can walk in and you can say, I have access to this property in the midst of a foreign country and I don't have any need to to fear whether or not I'm going to be granted access because I hold in my hand the passport that gets me there. And so the author of Hebrews says that each child of God carries with him a confidence to walk into God's kingdom. A confidence to walk into God's throne room. That when you pray, you can approach God with full and total confidence. It's being... It's like being pulled over for speeding and the police officer asks for your license and registration and you have them in your hand and you can confidently say, here it is, no issues. I've paid my bills. I've passed the test. Now whether or not you're going to get a ticket for speeding is another matter. But the confidence that you have in the examination of whether or not you are who you say you are, entering into God's presence with confidence. The author of Hebrews refers to God's presence as the holy places. Look down at verse 19. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places. It's a truth that needs to be explained to us. It doesn't need to be explained to a Jew because the holy place was the only place in which God's glory and God's presence resided. It was known as the heavenly sanctuary. A place where only those who've been invited could enter. And they could only come on God's terms. In fact, to the holiest of holies. There was only one person invited once a year, coming at God's invitation on God's terms, as the high priest entered after he had been cleansed with the blood of an offering to enter into God's presence. But this is also the place where people who come without proper invitation without proper qualifications, will not find a welcomeness, but rather will find absolute and certain death, as is warned in the Old Testament, that anyone who would come into the Holy of Holies without proper invitation and qualification would find certain death. So the question that we must ask is this. We have confidence to enter into God's presence but we don't have some sort of mystical heavenly passport, right, that you carry around, that you're a member of Community Baptist Church, so you'll get a membership card. And when you get to heaven, hopefully you know it was in your casket when you're you're buried or it was on you when you died. So when you get to heaven, you can pull it out, and that's not the case. So by what means are we granted access into God's presence? And there's only one way. Verse 19, access to enter confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning and you believe that you can get access to God by your good works, you're sorely mistaken because God God doesn't require you to be good. God requires you to be perfect. If you think that you have gained some access to God by your church membership or maybe your your giving or, or maybe your attendance at some church, you're gravely mistaken because access is only through Jesus Christ. In order for the Israelites to have access into the most holy place, the high priest would come based on a blood sacrifice that was given on the behalf of the children of Israel, and he would carry that with him, and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar. And you look at that and you say, that is really weird, and those practices I don't understand. 
They're given to us to remind us that to come into God's presence, it costs something. And blood must be shed. And so your access to God is paid for not by the blood of bulls and of goats, which can never take away sin. But it's given by the access of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary alone. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you have a new and a living way. Look at verse 20. This isn't the way of the law, the elementary way of the Old Testament. Verse 20 says that this way is new. It's living. It's opened up for us. That through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you have a way that is new, not in a sense that's totally different from the Old Testament. This phrase literally means freshly cut. It's a way that's a fulfillment of the Old Testament and it's a way that offers life. Friend, if you try to keep a list of rules that only offers death because you can never be good enough, you can't be perfect. And that's why Jesus came and was perfect for you. You see, the pathway to God is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, the life. The way of Jesus does not lead to destruction. It leads to life everlasting. And verse 20 tells us it's a way that God has opened up for us, meaning that it was closed. That in order to gain access into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would have to go through a curtain, that this curtain that was six inches thick, hung between the nation of Israel and the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain that hung that separated all people from God. On this curtain, there were cherubim embroidered on it that reminder, reminded all of us that read about it or that saw it in the Old Testament that Adam and Eve were cast out from the garden and cherubim were put in place because their sin kept them from God. This curtain was a reminder that because of our sin, we can never get to God. That in order for us to be saved, God had to come to us. So what happened to that dividing wall of hostility? What happened to that veil? I want to read you a passage from Matthew chapter 27. You can write it down and look at it later. Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it to the reed and gave it for him to drink and asked, let's see whether Elijah will save him. Verse 15, Jesus cried again with a loud voice. The Gospel of John tells us, saying, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. Listen to Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple, the dividing wall, was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Friend, it was on the cross of Calvary that Jesus Christ removed the wall between you and God so that if you approach God on the merits of Jesus alone, you can confidently have access. The foundation that the church must be built on is that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus alone that we have access to God. And secondly, not only is Jesus our access, but the second foundational truth we see in verse 21, if you look there with me, 
is that Jesus is our advocate, that he is our high priest. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, once again, it's a present reality that Jesus won't just be your priest in the future, but he's your priest right now, that you have no need of any other human priest. You have the great priest, Jesus himself, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. He's appealing your case before God right now. You don't need to go through any priest here on this earth. You don't need to go through a pastor. You have access to God through Jesus alone. Many people have asked the question, when you die and you get to heaven, and Jesus asks you, why should I let you in? Any answer that begins with I is the wrong answer. The answer must begin with because you said so. Because you go in through Christ. That He's your access. Without Him, you have no access. And not only that, He's your continual access. Not only for the moment of salvation, but right now as you pray, as we sang in our first hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. His blood speaks for me. That it's Jesus Christ making access to God right now. That as you pray, as we've prayed today, so Jesus has taken our prayers to the Father and He's prayed them to the Father. He's given access that He's standing there for you right now. That even as you sin, that Christ takes those sins and He's an advocate to you before the Father, for you to the Father. 1 John chapter 2, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's no greater comfort in this world than to embrace the truth that when you sin, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father continually making intercession for you. These two truths build a foundation for our church because they combat the false belief that would undermine our gospel focus. Because of these truths, how are we to respond? What is the church that we must build on top of these two truths that Jesus is our access and Jesus is our Advocate. I'd like to show you in verses 22 to 25 the three pursuits that we must dedicate ourselves to if we are going to be faithful to God in the future. These pursuits reveal to us what we need to dedicate ourselves to as a church. And these pursuits may be different than you think. We have albums that are in the lobby that we'd love for you to look at after the service if you'd like, that would notice that this ministry in the 40s and the 50s looks different than it does today. And eventually the building was built on Kern Road. And if they grew out of Kern Road, our church moved to the sanctuary that we'll be in tonight, the worship center, the chapel, and then eventually to this building. Buildings have changed. Outfits have changed. Hairstyles have changed. Schedules have changed. I believe in our first meeting there were 1947 on September 7th. My mind remembers there were 62 or 63 for Sunday school and and 58 for the morning service. Somehow they lost three people in between Sunday school and the morning service. 
And today it's changed that it's very much the opposite, that perhaps more come for the morning service than for Sunday school. And so if we look, patterns have changed, schedules have changed. Our culture has changed. We have changed. So when we ask ourselves, what is it that we need to cling to? Would it be a building? Well, let's praise the Lord that those in communities past didn't cling to a certain building. Would it be certain practices, patterns, hairstyles, maybe, from the 40s? What do we cling to? I'm glad that God answers that question for us so we don't have to wonder. Let's look down and see the three commands that God gives us as our three pursuits. The first one is found in verse 22. If you write in your Bible, I'd like to ask you to underline a couple words. They're imperatives for us. Verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. Let us draw near is our first one. Secondly, let us hold fast. And thirdly, let us consider. Let us consider. Those are three commands that are given to the church. We're going to look at each one of them individually. Three specific actions, three specific pursuits. And the first one is that Community Baptist Church must cling to, we must pursue holiness. Holiness. Pursue holiness. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near... A close relationship with God, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first command that God wants us to see this morning is that if we are to be a faithful congregation to God, we must be focused on drawing near to God in our relationship with Him. The first two foundational truths that I gave you at the beginning of the passage offer truths in regards to our standing before God, our position before God as His child. Verse 22 goes further to tell the believer to pursue not only a standing, but a relationship with God that can be characterized by drawing near to Him. Just because you have a positional standing with someone does not mean that you have a strong relationship with them. Whether that be a filial standing of brother or sister, father, mother, grandparent. Whether that be a covenant standing of husband and wife. That just because you're married to somebody doesn't mean that you have a close relationship with that person. It implies that to be a Christian doesn't mean that your relationship with God is good. It doesn't mean that just because you've been rescued from God that you have a close relationship with God because you could be here under intense conviction for your sin. Would you consider yourself to be near God this morning? Perhaps you would like a thriving relationship with God, but you're struggling in knowing how to start. Maybe even struggling with knowing how to do it at all. And thankfully, this passage gives us that answer. The first 
step in developing a relationship with God is developing a knowledge of him. And secondly, it's living in obedience to him. That holiness requires knowledge of God. The word holy in and of itself just means set apart. Set apart as different. Set apart to something. Our passage tells us that we are to be set apart in our knowledge of God. It references a heart, a true heart, and a full assurance of faith. A heart that possesses true faith and is totally filled with faith. That you're filling your mind and your heart to the brim with the knowledge of who God is because you can't be like a God that you don't know. And because of your false views of who God is, perhaps in your attempts to be holy, you're actually being ungodly. Perhaps your view of God is off. We had, we had a rule in our house growing up as a child that if you were up during a meal and you had, like, if you got up to get to refill your drink, that you also had to get anyone else's that asked you. My parents said this will be an act in training you to help serve others. So we had this phrase we would use, hey, while you're up, do you mind? So nobody ever wanted to be the first person up from the table. Because you recognize there are three empty glasses on the table and you're going to have to walk all the way over to the sink to get more water and we're waiting to see who's going to serve the best. Because the first person that stands up is probably going to be up for a while because, hey, while you're up, can you get me a drink? Hey, while you're up, I need this. Hey, while you're up, can you do this? Right? And so there were ways that the first person who got up could kind of get them back. And one of the ways was when they refilled the water to refill it to the very top. So that if they tipped it to drink, it would spill, right? I mean, you've all done this. Don't look at me like you're so innocent, right? And you fill the water to the top, and then you learn about surface tension in school, and so you try to make it dome just a little bit and carry it ever so carefully. It's even better if it's on the table, because then you can pour it in their cup and fill it all the way to the top, and then laugh at them when they spill it, right? And what, what this concept of full assurance means is that you're so full of the knowledge of God that when somebody bumps you, you can't help but spill it out. That your faith is full in your life. That as you, as you read your Bible in the morning, you're not reading just for some nugget of truth to fill you. But you're reading to, to, to see God, to be filled with his knowledge, to worship as you come to church. You can't help but go back and talk about it at the lunch table. To talk about it throughout the week. Hey, do you know what I read in scripture this morning? You're not going to believe the witnessing opportunity I had. That it just comes out of you. To be full up with God. How do I do this? Friend, you need to be in Scripture understanding what the Bible says so you can know who God is. Dedicate yourself to being here, to hear the preaching and the teaching, to listening to Christian music that will fill you with truth. That in everything you do, you are full up with God. But knowledge isn't enough. Because knowledge alone puffs up. We must live in obedience. And that's the end of this phrase in verse 22, look with me. Full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This phrase is not referring to baptism as some people would think that it is in cleansing the body and that somehow baptism 
is efficacious, is somehow effective in your salvation, that somehow if you're baptized, it takes away your sin. It's not what this verse is saying at all. Remember, he's writing to the Hebrews. That's why the book is called Hebrews. He's writing to Jews who know the Jewish ceremonial system and they would recognize that by this phrasing, what he's referencing is that those who have become unclean in the Jewish system had to go through the ceremonial washing rites in order to be cleansed again. In order to be seen as clean. That if you touched something that was dead, you were unclean and you had to go through the process of washing and waiting in order to be seen as clean again, in order to be restored. And here this is saying that if you have sin in your life, That is the word of God that must cleanse your sin. That you must repent and confess and come back to God. And if you're here this morning and you're in sin, friend, you're never too far from God. God doesn't ask you to clean up your life to come to him. He says come to him so he can clean up your life. That God is the solution to your issues. Not as some spiritual Tylenol but in recreating you to be a new person through salvation and then giving you power through the Holy Spirit to live a victorious life free from sin. That you come in confession and repentance and you are restored so you can live a life of holiness, of separateness to God. If you want to study this more, you can see it reflected in Leviticus 14 and Numbers chapter 8 and Numbers chapter 19. And you see these ritual purifications that Jesus fulfilled. So now we come through him because he's our advocate. You cannot draw near to a God you do not know. And you cannot draw near to God with harbored known sin in your life. And so pour yourself into scripture to read it and understand it and apply it. And purpose to be to flee sin so you will be free from sin. Give sin no quarter in your life as you grow in your relationship with Him. Run from sin. Stay far from sin. Because if we are to be a congregation who is faithful to God in the future as we have been in the past, we must remain faithful in our pursuit of drawing near to God by dedicating ourselves to the Word and passionately pursuing holiness. So that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge. Pursuits of our church, if we are to be faithful in this path to faithfulness, number one, we must pursue holiness. Number two, we must profess truth. We must profess truth. Look down at verse 23 with me. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. First of all, let us draw near to God. Second, let us hold fast. This idea of holding fast is to to hold something tight with the assumption that someone or something is trying to take it away. That there's something working against me and I'm holding it near to me. Fall is a wonderful time of year. The season is changing. The leaves will soon change. The crisp air in the morning and evening reminds us that it's close to deer season and it's college football season, which are two very important things for a church to be faithful. And so, if you're visiting with us, that's a joke. Um, 
Last night I watched a little bit of the Notre Dame game. And it doesn't matter if you like Notre Dame or not, because if you do, you're glad I watched them. And if you don't, you're glad they lost. And so we're all happy this morning. But last night I had the opportunity to watch the Notre Dame game and have a new head coach, Marcus Freeman. Marcus agreed to wear a microphone before the game and during the game so they could listen in on how he coaches his players. And they showed a clip of him as he was encouraging his players, you can do this, we got this. Play strong, be strong. And he came over to a, to a wide receiver who was receiving a pass and the guy caught the ball and Marcus Freeman walked up to him and he got in his face and he says, don't forget to tuck that ball in and hold it tight. And that's the responsibility of the church, Friends is to receive the truth and to tuck it in and to hold it tight. Because if you've ever seen a football game, when a person runs with the ball, every defender has got their hands in there trying to strip it away. And there will be forces that impact this church that will try to remove us from holding fast. And a faithful church requires that we receive the truth, friends, and we hold it tight that we recognize what the scripture says and that we hold it on to protect we hold on to it to protect it what are we to hold on to scripture says the confession of our hope the timeless truths of scripture you heard it sung by our our children the next generation why do we teach them hymns like that Why do we teach them what is right and what is wrong? Why do we teach them to worship one true triune God, Father, Son, Spirit? Because there are demonic forces at work that are motivated in our culture today to try to rip that from our hands. And so we hold fast to the confession of faith. And it may seem like it's a little bit odd to call it a confession. Maybe you've thought of that as as confessing sin, but confession literally means just to say the same thing as. And so, as I confess to God, if I'm in sin, I say, God, you say this is sin, and I am saying this is sin. It's wrong. That's confession. And a confession of faith is to say, God, you say this is true, and we say this is true. And we hold tight an effort to do this in the past. Godly Christians for the last... 2,000 years have written what we call confessions of faith. Outlining in simple terms what the Bible teaches so that you can read these confessions and you can understand not only what the Bible says but what the Bible teaches as a confession of faith indexes different scriptures in regards to one thing that the Bible teaches. And there are wonderful documents like the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. These are incredible documents that I would encourage you to read. This is why we teach catechisms in our Kids for Truth program on Sunday evenings to our young children. To help them understand what the Bible says and what it means for them. It's why we teach catechisms in our Christian school. Because it's being true to history. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in all our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing error of the times. And that was written in the 1800s. If it was true then, how much more is it true today? Those who use it in their families or classes must labor to explain the sense, but the words should be carefully learned by heart, for they will be understood better as years past. Those beautiful children up here singing, 
Most of them have no idea the depth of what they say. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Lord of all, Creator of the heavens, the earth, sea. I'm going to get the words wrong. The sky. It doesn't rhyme with all, but that's okay. And, and we believe in Jesus, the only Son of God, born of a Virgin Mary who lived as one of us. Those words will echo in their hearts for the rest of their life. And as we instill these truths to our hearts and the hearts of the next generation, so we are instilling truth that will ring true for years to come. In this challenge of holding fast the confession of our hope, that which brings confidence, it gives us a warning. It says to do it without wavering. Do it in a way that is unbending. Do it in a way that is standing strong. Got a text of encouragement from a church member this week that said, I often have thought that simply reading Scripture publicly one day will be enough to put someone in jail. And I pray that our church will stay strong and be true. What an incredible encouragement to us to be true to what God has said, to be unbending, to stand strong for the one who doubts, James says, is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, double-minded, unstable in all his ways. And so we cling to the truth, we hold fast to the truth without wavering. Friends, you do not need to be afraid of the truth. We've been through a lot of hard things here at Community in our past, together, And there's been a phrase that I actually had one of my mentors share with me during a time of difficulty. And I've said it many times. I've shared it with many of you. It's that truth will win. And truth needs no defense. So side with truth. You don't need to be afraid of the truth. There's no passage in Scripture that you need to be scared of. There's no truth in Scripture that is not best for you, that is not the heart of God for you, that is not God's plan for human flourishing. And so hold fast to that truth, and our adherence to that truth must not change. Though when you look at pictures, buildings change and people change. Our adherence to the confession of hope must never change. It needs to be unwavering. A truth that surpasses all culture, all time, all language barriers because we worship a God who is faithful. The end of verse 23, why must we not waver? Because God doesn't waver. Because God doesn't change. You never have to wonder if God's going to listen to you the next morning. You never have to wonder if God's going to be offended at you. We worship an unchanging God who's demonstrated His unchanging love to the entire world on the cross of Calvary. And if we are to be a congregation who is faithful to God in the future as we've been in the past, we must hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering, without bending. Number three, we've seen that we must pursue holiness. We've seen that we must profess the truth. And number three, in verse 24 and 25, we've seen that we must provoke 
to godliness. Provoke to godliness. Let us consider, the King James uses the word provoke. Let us consider how to stir up, there, I'm sorry, there's a word provoke under stir up. The word consider means to, to think carefully how we provoke, stir up one another to love and to good works. That's what that word stir up means, to prod, to irritate, to provoke. Some of you are so good at irritating. As kid, as a child, I was the king irritant. I love to push people's buttons. In every interaction that you have with fellow church members, you are either provoking them to godliness or to worldliness. Those are the only two options. In your interaction, they are either going to be drawn closer to God as a result of your interaction with them, or they're going to be drawn away from God. As you provoke, Scripture says provoke positively. To provoke to what? To love and good works. Rather than provoking to sin and provoking to gossip and provoking in ways that would have people stray from God. Rather than turning people against another member of this church, we push them towards each other. That we provoke to love, to love God and love each other. That we provoke to good works. That you should be an irritating stimulus in this church to love God and love others. That when people see you coming, they should think, oh, I know what he's going to tell me. He's going to be so encouraging. It's going to help me love God more. How are we to provoke? Well, first of all, we're, for to, we're, expo- we're supposed to provoke thoughtfully. That's what that word consider means. So when you provoke to love and good works, firstly, you should provoke thoughtfully. This means that you plan ahead, that you think about what your interactions are with your church members, your church family, and you think about how you can be encouraging to others. When I was in college, Becky and I, I believe we had just gotten engaged, maybe we we're close to being engaged, and it was my birthday, and I was going to class, and um, one of my best friends at the time, we had almost all of the same classes together at the university, and so we planned our schedule that way because we lived across the hall from each other, and uh, we wanted to commiserate as we st- suffered through college, right? And so... I get to the first class with him, and at the end of the class, my teacher hands me a card. And I look at it, and it says, to Joe on his birthday. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. I mean, I don't know my teacher that well. I guess he knew my birthday. I open it up, and it was a card from Becky. And it said, Joe, today's your birthday. I'm really excited for you. I've planned something for your birthday, and so I'm going to send you on a scavenger hunt to find your present. I'm like, oh, this is... So cool. Like for me, I was like, oh man, it's your birthday today. You know, and she had planned this out. And she said, um, just follow the directions throughout the day. And at the end of the day, the last go to lead you to your, to your, you know, your present. And um, she was traveling with her dad. So she wasn't even in the area and she had set all this up. Her dad was a traveling evangelist. So she was, you know, who knows where? And see, it shows you, I don't, I don't take the care that I don't even know where she was at that point. I talked to her on the phone, you know, but. And so I was like, wow, that's really cool. And my friend's like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. That's awesome. And so we go to the next class, and at the end of that class, I get another 
note. And it says, one of the rules of the scavenger hunt is you can't call me, you have to just follow the note. So it led me on the scavenger hunt, and every class that I went to, it would always end with my teacher giving me another card from Becky. And I'm like, she is omnipresent, you know? What is happening here? And I started to get a little bit nervous. Like, what is, like, am I getting punked or something? Like, what is happening here? And I finished my last class as I follow all over campus these different clues. And I walk out of my last class and I look at my friend. I'm like, I, I, I cannot even believe this. And he looks at me and he pulls a card out of his pocket he'd been carrying all day. And he says, here's your last clue. And I'm like, what? And so I was like, here, what? Okay, all right, fine. I'm a little bit, a little bit weirded out. And I opened the envelope, and it was all these incredible words of Becky confessing her love for me and all these things that I won't share with you. And at the end, it said, to receive your present, just turn around. And I turned around, and it was like heaven came down because Becky was there. And the sun was behind her, and angels were singing. <laughs> and it was like the most glorious moment. And she's like, hey, I've got dinner reservations across town. And I was just blown away. And I'm like, like where do I go from here? Like, she is the most thoughtful, most amazing person to plan something like that. She bought a plane ticket, flew in from out of town just to have dinner on my birthday. And that's what this word consider means. It means to put a lot of thought and planning into something. And, and this means that like you have to put it in your schedule to get together with people from church and to provoke to love and good works. That relationships don't happen by accident. That if you feel like maybe you're not connecting to our church family, it may mean that you need to take the first step. That you need to reach out your hand and say, hey, how, how can I, I've noticed this family in church that just went through a very difficult time, how can I help them? How can I provoke them? I've been through a time like that, and I was tempted to believe this was not true about God, this is not true, but it is. And, and how can I, what kind of meal can I make? What what kind of time can I spend? What, what is a way in which I can provoke thoughtfully and encourage and, and to plan and maybe even spend some hard-earned money on someone else to encourage them in their walk with Christ that we would consider thoughtfully how we provoke one another to love and good works. Secondly, provoke personally. It says provoke one another. Friend, it's assumed and you are commanded to be involved in each other's lives that we would know each other. That you can't encourage someone that you don't know to step into their lives to worm your way into their hearts. That you would know the burdens, that you would know the discouragement, and that you would provoke personally. That maybe rather than worrying about every other problem in, in all the world that you see on social media, you would turn that off and open your eyes to the problems in our church Amen. and the issues that we are going through. And that we would carefully and thoughtfully and personally stir one another up 
and that we would provoke spiritually to love and good works. There are all sorts of ways that we can provoke, aren't there? But your responsibility, friend, is not to provoke in a fleshly way, but to provoke in a godly way that you would provoke thoughtfully, personally, and spiritually. Is this interaction helping my brother and sister in Christ love God more? Is this stirring up thoughts in their hearts against others that they didn't even know? Is this interaction motivating them to to spiritual good works? Or is it motivating them to sin? That I would provoke to love and good works thoughtfully, personally, spiritually, and friends, collectively. Collectively. Not neglecting to meet together. More than ever before, we've realized the importance of in-person gathering. I'm going to get really personal. This does not say not neglecting to sit on your couch every week and watch online. Now, there are certain circumstances, whether it's physical health, whether it's travel, in which that cannot be helped. And we praise the Lord for the opportunity for you to have teaching in your home when you are physically unable and incapacitated in order to be at this gathering. But this says not neglecting to meet together. That the gathering must be a priority. That I I love you so much. But if you come to me and you say, I'm just not connecting with the church, my first question is going to be, are you coming to Sunday school? Are you coming to Sunday morning service? Are you coming to our Sunday evening equipping time? Are you coming to men's and ladies Bible study? And are you part of a community group? And if you say no, you know what I'm going to tell you to do? Come to Sunday school. Come to Sunday morning service. Come to Sunday evening. Come to men's and ladies Bible studies. Come to community groups. Because those who are involved in those times and making them a priority are involved in the church in a great way. So don't neglect that, friend. I don't get paid more if you come. I'm not, like, working for a bonus, right? I care about your soul. You notice we don't even put numbers in the bulletin anymore, and you know that because you've come and you've told me. And I've told you if you've asked me, we're not going to do that. If you want to know, I will email you every week. Just email me. i tell you how many people were there. We count every week. We're not here just for numbers. We're here to provoke to love and to good works. So don't neglect it for your soul's sake. Be under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Don't neglect it as some do. But instead, provoke reassuringly, encourage one another. When you come to the gathering, recognize that people here are in need of encouragement. Some of you have been through things this week that that I've never been through. And some of you have not been through difficult times and you've got... You've got, you're full of that assurance of faith and ready to encourage and can share. So come ready to encourage. Be known as an encourager. Be known as the one who's provoking to love and good works. And lastly, provoke persistently. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul gives Timothy a warning All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, 
deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned. Continue in what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from the childhood you've been acquainted with the Scriptures and are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to be a congregation who's faithful to God in the future as we've been in the past, we must be committed to provoking each other to righteousness. Provoke thoughtfully, personally, spiritually, collectively, reassuringly, and persistently. As we close, I'd like to draw your attention to a small word that is repeated over and over again. Friends, these commands are not given to a singular person. They are given in the plural. It says, let us. This means together. Community Baptist Church was not built on the back of any one person. Community Baptist Church has not been pastored by any one person. Community Baptist Church in this building was not built with funds given by any one person. Those that are saved have not been saved by the evangelism of any one person. And the church will not be built on any one person other than Jesus Christ alone. And so it is your responsibility to build the church together. It is us. I heard last week that a pastor is often judged with the three B's. Budgets, buildings, and bottoms in the pew. Okay? And if we approach ministry like that, we will not have a faithful church before God. We must build this church together. Let us provoke to godliness. Let us pursue holiness. And let us profess the truth together. We have 75 years of history, truth anchored in the past, and I'm praying that if the Lord tarries, that he will give us 175 more. How wonderful it will be for us to worship together in heaven for a hundred years and to have another saint join us and say, I was just saved at Community Baptist Church as well. By the way, it's going strong. As we're faithful to the Word of God, recognizing Jesus Christ as our access to God and our only access to God and our advocate before God and our only advocate before God, may we dedicate ourselves to pursue God together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word and how it's so clear. So thankful for the joy of worship this morning through prayer, through scripture reading, through hearing your word preached, the joy of singing together, the joy, Father, of enjoying a meal to come, fellowshipping around the table, May you give us grace this morning to be a faithful church. 
May we stir up one another to love and good works. May we live a life of holiness and may we protect the truth. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to give you just a moment of response and reflection in your heart. If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you call out to Jesus Christ alone as your only hope, as your only source of righteousness? Brother or sister in Christ, as your, as your heart has been stirred by the word of God, would you respond to and reflect on the word that you've heard in your heart this morning? Would you use this moment to call out to God and worship? Whatever truth is on your heart now is what God wants you to be thinking about. Would you reflect and respond to that truth as the instrument plays?